I'm sure you got there faster than me. Okay, John chapter 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew. And good morning. Let's start by uh, going back to an ancient time known as the 1990s. Uh, If we dig up some relics of this period, you might see something like this coming up on the screen right now. Uh, This, of course, is a VHS tape. And uh, when I was a kid, my family and I would go down to Video Easy, back when that existed. We'd go down there every week or two, and we'd rent out a VHS tape uh, to watch as a family. Because, of course, we didn't have Netflix, we didn't have movies on demand. You know, this is the time when dinosaurs roamed the earth. (laughs) But uh, every so often, really just occasionally, uh, you'd run into a problem with one of your rental VHS tapes. Because uh, the person who had it before you might have gone to record their favourite show on VHS, and they'd forgotten that they only got halfway through the rental tape and they'd left it inside the VCR, the recorder. And so then when they went to record their favourite show, it would actually tape over the end of the movie that they'd rented out. And then you would get the rental tape and you'd put it in and you'd be watching Jurassic Park and then suddenly, just as you're getting to the end, it would turn on to like an episode of Law and Order. And so... You know, we might actually feel that way, that sense of someone's taped over the end of the movie, as we've heard this reading from Andrew in Judges 17. Yeah, across the book of Judges, we've seen this pattern developing. Uh, God's people sin, they reject him, and then he uh, gives them over to a foreign enemy. Then they cry out to him for help. And finally, he raises up a judge to deliver them. Do you remember seeing that cycle across the book? Uh, Now, of course, it's broken down at different points as we've gone along, but the cycle's still been there. As we've come to this chapter, however, Judges 17, none of that's there. I mean, yes, we see sin, but there's no foreign enemy. There's no crying out to God. There's no judge at all. Even though the book is called Judges, it's like the the cover of the VHS says Judges on it, but there's no judge to speak of. It feels like someone's taped over the end of the movie. How does this relate? Well, actually, it does have a lot to do with what's come before. Because what we see here is where Israel ends up as a result of all the things that we've seen across the book of Judges. What happens when they push the true God out of the picture and just do whatever they want to do? What happens in a world where people ignore, reject, push away the true and living God and do whatever seems right to them? Well, today we'll find out. 
And so let's pray as we jump in. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we need your help to not only understand this text this morning, but to understand what it means for us personally and what it means for our world. And so, Lord, we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, would you speak through your word? Show us wonderful things. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, in your word. Lord, may we see wonderful things, the wonder of you in particular. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, if you want to open up to Judges 17, uh, we're going to come in at the start of the chapter. And uh, as I said, we don't meet any judges here. Uh, Instead, we meet this guy, Micah, and we meet his mum. And the first thing that we learn about Micah is that he's a self-confessed thief. Come in at at verse 2 with me. Uh, Basically, what happens is he stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mum. Don't know why, but it's a lot of money. And uh, and one day he hears his mum calling down a curse on whoever stole this money. And so he thinks to himself, this isn't good. I'd better go and confess. So he goes back to his mum and and he says, well, I took this money, mum. And his mum turns on a dime. She goes from cursing whoever took this money to blessing the one who took this money. It's all really quite confusing. This isn't how it should be. Why is she suddenly celebrating? Well, because she has a plan for this money. Look at verse 3. She says, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. And that sounds really good, doesn't it? She was actually planning to to let go of this money, this 1,100 silver coins, for the Lord. But what's she going to do with it? She's going to make a carved image and a metal image. The first half sounds okay. This is for the Lord. But she's going to turn this into a statue, an idol of God. Now, this is a a little bit different to what we've seen in Judges so far. We've often seen people worshipping idols of different kinds. They've worshipped Baal. Uh, They've worshipped uh, Asheroth, they've made up those poles. This is a little bit different because notice she's saying that she's dedicating it to the Lord, that is the God of Israel, to make a statue of him, a statue of the Lord. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, firstly, because it breaks the second commandment. Uh, You shall not make for yourselves a carved image and you shall not bow down to it. Right, So even though she kind of looks very devoted in giving away this money to the Lord, in fact, she doesn't give away all 1,100. It says she only gives away 200, so it's only on appearance. But even though she may look very devoted, uh, she's actually not devoted to the Lord. She's breaking his commandment. She's disobeying him. And then the second thing, and this is really why this commandment is such a big deal, the second thing is, I mean, why would someone want to make an image of God? Why would someone want to make a statue of him? Well, uh, my wife Sky and I, we've recently moved house. Uh, We're living just around the corner still over in Greenpoint. And uh, I I love doing photography. And so we've got all of these pictures in frames everywhere. And, and, you know, I've been thinking, well, where do we put these up in the house? And uh, this is a little bit embarrassing, but apparently I have this habit of sort of putting my hands behind my back like this and just sort of wandering around the house, 
you know, Sky calls it optimizing. I'm taking these mental measurements of, oh, could that one go there? Could that one go there? Oh, it should go a few centimeters over here. Mm, where should it go? And, uh, and so, you know, I could say that we're choosing where to put these photos. Really, I'm choosing <laughs> where we put these photos up. But, but notice the point. Uh, I've, we own the photos. We own the house. We choose where they go, right? And that's much like what Micah and his mum are doing here. They've got this statue. They're rendering God down into a decoration, in essence. They choose where to put him. And so who's in control? Well, not God. You don't have to worship him on your terms. Oh, sorry, on his terms. You worship him on your terms, where you want, when you want. You choose where he goes. So Micah's mum believes she's in control of God. And here's the thing. It's not just because she has the statue. It's because she also makes the statue. And there's quite a difference in those two things because she gets to choose what this God looks like. Now, if I were to ask you to draw a picture of God, what would you do? Kids, if you're listening this morning, how would you draw God? It'd be really hard, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, would you, would you draw him with a big sword, a mighty warrior, because God is very powerful? Would you draw him with like a, a big golden crown because he's a king? Would you draw him with open arms because he's a loving father? It'd be very difficult to draw God, wouldn't it? <laughs> now, are those things God? The, the sword, the crown, the open arms. Is that God? Well, it shows us an aspect of God, doesn't it? But, I mean, you, you can't even capture the full personality of a person in a drawing or a photograph, let alone the infinite creator, God. <laughs> uh, he is the mighty, powerful warrior, and he is the king of all, and he is the loving father with arms outstretched, but he's all of these things infinitely, to the maximum possible extent, all the time. And so whenever someone tries to represent him visually, especially, say, in a, a statue that's meant to be who he is, well, they're not going to capture all of that, are they? They're just going to capture one aspect of God, and albeit very imperfectly. And so what ends up happening is they render down who they think God is to essentially who they want him to be. Well, I want him to be the loving God, and so I'll make him look that way. I want him to be the warrior who'll get victory over our enemies. I want him to look that way. I'll give him a sword. I'll give him the open arms. And that's not just a problem in the ancient world. It's a problem in today's world. See, another pastor, Tim Keller, he reckons that this is actually the main sin of our time. And if you look out for it, you'll see it everywhere, even sometimes at church. And it sounds something like, well, uh, you know, I don't believe in a God who's like that. I don't believe in a God who judges sin or who pours out wrath. I don't, I don't like that picture of God. And so here's who God is to me. God is just the loving Father. He just has love for everyone. Right, and it can go the other way as well, right? Uh, someone might go, well, I, I've had bad experiences with the church and I've had bad experience with Christians. They were 
um, it's just hypocrites. You know, I was actually talking with someone over the last week who had this experience. And so they might go, well, you know, I can't accept the idea of, of a God who's actually loving because Christians aren't very loving. And so the version of God that I see is, is the God who's very judgmental. That's why Christians are so judgmental. And so I can reject that God because I don't like it. Right? You can go either way on this, fall off the horse, too loving or too um, powerful, too many demands. Uh, either way, it's a false rendering of God. It's something that can be looked at and then rejected. Or someone might say, well, in today's world, we can't accept a God who has such outdated views of sexuality and gender and other things like that. Uh, no, we can have nothing to do with a God like that. And so here's who God is to me. Maybe you've heard something like that before. But that's not God. <laughs> it's just a subjective opinion. That's just a little statue that someone's made. It's a false God. Because the true God has revealed himself through the scriptures for who he actually really is, objectively. And any attempt to render God down into an image, a statue, an opinion, or a list of things which we approve of is actually just rejecting the true God. Just like Micah's mum. That's exactly what he's, she's doing here. She makes an image of God so that she can worship something that has her approval. And Micah, well, he thinks that this is great. This is fantastic. Verse 4, he takes the statue and where does he put it? He puts it in his house. He thinks it's so good, he wants one. Which is very convenient if you think about it. Here it is in my home. I mean, uh, back then in the ancient world, uh, I don't need to go out to the tabernacle all the way over at Shiloh where uh, God had, had said, this is where I'm going to meet with my people. I don't need to go there to worship him. I've got God right here in my house. I can worship him in my pajamas, right? Probably uh, Micah would have loved to be in lockdown. I never need to leave the house. <laughs> uh, and then uh, not just... Having the statue, he also takes one of his sons and appoints him as a priest in his own little, you know, um, knockoff uh, tabernacle that he's got here. He's got a counterfeit tabernacle, counterfeit priest. Uh, it's, it doesn't need to be a Levite, which is what God said a priest has to be. Instead, I've got my own. Here he is. How convenient. And verse 6 summarizes the whole situation rather soberly. In those days, there was no king in Israel, right? No physical king, sure, but even more literally, they weren't treating God as their king. They weren't obeying him. They were doing whatever seemed right to them, and hence, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is just everyday life in Israel in the time of the judges. They don't have a human king. They don't have God as their king. They do whatever seems right to them. And now that we've gotten to know Micah, and his mum a little bit. The story really picks up because in verse 7, guess who comes along? A Levite, a member of the clan that God had set apart to be priests. Now, this is unbelievable. What's a Levite doing all the way out here? Well, Micah sees him and his eyes light up and he thinks it's time for an upgrade, right? 
This is like Apple's just released the iPhone 13 Pro Max, whatever. He's first in line for an upgrade. And so uh, he goes out to the gate of his house and he sees this Levite and they get talking and then he says, hey, 10 silver coins a year for you. Free food, free board, if you agree to be my priest. What do you think? And this Levite, he's meant to be up at the tabernacle, helping people worship the true God in the way that God had demanded, right? He's a long way from home and a long way from what God commanded him to do. But he sees the money and the text actually says that he was content to dwell with Micah. So this is in fact a false priest. He's not doing what God commanded. He's not helping people worship the true God. And so in verse 12, we get this. Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and he was in the house of Micah. He's no longer the Lord's priest. He's Micah's priest. And he's no longer serving in the house of the Lord. He's serving in the house of Micah. Why? Well, because Micah paid him enough. And there's a little bit more detail we can grab here as well. It says that Micah ordained the Levite, which we usually use that word to mean like um, uh, setting a pastor or a minister apart to do work, to serve Jesus in a church. Uh, but uh, in Hebrew, literally, it means to fill the hands of. Right. So if you're at a, a ceremony and being ordained as a priest in the Old Testament, you might put your hands out like this at the end of the ceremony, and they would fill it with a token that represents you're now a priest. So it could be you know, one of the priestly garments that you're going to wear. And so Micah filled the hands of the Levite, but not with priestly garments. What did he fill his hands with? Ten silver coins. Money. This is why the Levite is willing to disobey God's calling on his life. Just for money. The supposed holy man is motivated by self-interest. And so here's what we've got. Here's the situation. We've got a false priest in a false tabernacle helping Micah worship a false god. This is daily life in Israel at this point. False priest, false tabernacle, false god. And where does it lead? Verse 13, it leads to false confidence. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. And listen to his sense of conviction there. Now I know. Not just probably, not just maybe. No, I know that God is going to bring me success. Why? because oh, I've got a Levite. I've got the set-apart holy man as one of my priests. I've got one. And remember, what is Micah's view of God? Well, much like his mum, it's that he's in control of God. All you need to do is look at his house, uh, inside his house at the silver statue sitting on his shelf to get confirmation of that. God is someone that I can control. If I do the right thing or have the right person in my house, then God will have to do something for me. And it's actually a very mechanistic way of looking at God, isn't it? If, if I do X, Y, Z, then he has to do X, Y, Z. And really, 
I mean, it's not any sort of relationship, is it? That's definitely not a personal relationship because in a real personal relationship, you actually, well, you don't just try and manipulate the other person into doing whatever you please. That's not a relationship. That's toxic. <laughs> in a real personal relationship, you actually open yourself up to the other person. You give them the potential of changing you. Uh, you actually give them the, the privilege of, of sometimes um, contradicting you, disagreeing with you, uh, sometimes even upsetting you, as you change to become someone else in relationship with them. You're not trying to manipulate them to get what you want. You're actually giving them the possibility of changing you. That's a real personal relationship. And that's the truly sad thing about Micah and Israel at this time. They're missing out on this personal relationship with the God who made them, who rescued them, and who wants to change them so that they would become the holy people he made them to be. They're missing out on that relationship. And you can actually hear it in the language that Micah uses. In verse 13, now this is subtle, you might have missed it, but in verse 13, he calls God the Lord. And you might notice there that it's all in lowercase except for the L. Now, uh, what that's signaling, and again, this is really subtle, is, is that Micah is actually calling God by a different name than what he was generally known, in, known as in Israel. Because sometimes you also see Lord written in capital letters, right? L-O-R-D, all in caps. And what that's standing for is the Hebrew word Yahweh which is the covenant name that God had given to his people, had revealed himself as to his people way back in the time of Moses. You will know me as Yahweh, I am. And this covenant name, all in capitals, Lord, Yahweh, actually stands for the infinite power of God, that is so far above them, as well as the intimate, faithful love of God, that he is right with them. He's beyond them, but also with them. This, this great and powerful, amazing, all-surpassing creator God is with them and committed to them as, as, as his people. And Micah doesn't know his name. He doesn't know him. He calls him by a different name. And so I need to ask, is this a situation for you? Because maybe you call yourself a Christian... Maybe you've been tuning into the live stream or whatever. Maybe you, you say that you follow God and, and you do it because you hope that God will do something for you. Right? It's not that you truly, really know him. It's that you're hoping he'll do something for you. And it might even be a good thing that you're hoping for. It could be, for example, that you hope he'll heal you from a health issue or that he'll fix a broken relationship in your life. Or that he'll bring your family back together from some estrangement. It could be a good thing. And you think that if you do the right things, just like Micah having the right priest in his house, if you do the right things, then he'll step in and he'll make it happen. But the danger is that you're putting your hope in a false promise from a false God. It's not actually a true God that you're putting your hope in. Because a personal relationship with God isn't just about getting him to do what you want. And so you might find yourself ending up like Micah here, uh, sitting with his false priest in his false tabernacle with false confidence in a false God. 
And he thinks that God is on his side. He thinks that everything's going to go great from now on. You know, now I know that the Lord will prosper me. He's got a lot of faith, if you want to put it that way. But from now on, things are actually going to go really poorly for Micah. The story takes a turn as we come into chapter 18. Again, in verse 1, we hear that there's no king in Israel, a reminder that there's no rules. Everyone just does what's right in their own eyes, including one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of Dan. And you might think that it's great to hear your name in the Bible as I just have, right? Like if you have a, a tribe that shares your name, you know, the tribe of Andrew, the tribe of Rhonda, you know, just random people who are here this morning, right? Uh, but I, I actually... I'm not very stoked about sharing my name with these guys. Uh, verse 1 tells us that they're wandering around looking for a place to live because no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Now, what does that mean? Well, you might remember that um, generations ago, God had commanded the Israelites to go into this land, Canaan, the promised land, and to conquer it, and that would be their home. So flip back with me all the way to the start of Judges, Judges 1, verse 34, and we'll see something interesting about the tribe of Dan here. See, God had commanded them, go in, take your inheritance, I'll be with you, I'll give you success to do this. But in Judges 1, 34, here's what we see. The Amorites, one of their enemies, uh, pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. Now, uh, what's happening there? The people of Dan, commanded by God to go in and take their inheritance, they see the people, they see this obstacle, and they think they look far too strong for us. And so rather than trusting God and taking them on, they let themselves get pressed back into the mountains. And so now what's happened is they've got nowhere to live. Why? Because of their doubt and disobedience. They haven't gone and done what God called them to do. And so instead they just wander around kind of like a, like a gang of no good teenagers that are skipping school and, and just looking to get into trouble. And one day they come to Micah's country they think maybe this could be a place where we could live. So they send out five spies to see what it's like. They come up to the Levite who's outside Micah's house. And they're like, oh, hey, mate. How you doing? You're a Levite, aren't you? Oh, you're a, you're a long way from home. And you can picture him like surrounding him at this point. Now, come on, tell us, who brought you here? Did they pay you much? Are they rich? Do they have any cool stuff? And you can picture the Levite like trying to take a step back from this whole thing. Oh, it's, it's this guy, Micah, and uh, yeah, he's, he's paying me. He hired me as his priest. And the spies all give each other a look, right? Their eyes light up. They like the sound of this place. And not only because there's money around, but because... Wow, here's a Levite. Now, imagine having your own personal priest, perhaps they think. God would have to bless us then. Does that sound like anything we've heard before? I'm getting deja vu with that one. And so the spies journey on and they find this little city called Laish. 
And here's what they see, verse 7. Um, they see a people who are quiet and unsuspecting. This is Judges 18, verse 7. They see a people who are quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing, lots of wealth, with no allies. Ding, 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 right? This is low-hanging fruit. Here's a people, they're, they're rich. They don't have a military. They don't have friends. It's like they've just been served up on a plate for them. Now, here's the question. Will the people of Dan need God's help to go and conquer Laish? No way. Right? This is going to be easy for them. It's like going to conquer Morissette. Right? There's, there's nothing. There's no one. There's no military. Just go and take it. Hopefully not. But, you know, again, here's just a picture of everyday life in Israel. Just like Micah and his mum, the people of Dan think they don't really need the true God. We can do what we want. In fact, coming back to Micah, here's where things go from bad to worse. Because the spies report back to the tribe of Dan. They tell the whole tribe about this laish that's just easy pickings and how the priests said, oh, yep, God's with you, everything's going to go okay. Uh, and so everyone's really excited about this. They get 600 blokes together and they trek out for battle against Morissette, against Laish. And on the road, the spies go past Micah's house and they go, oh, yeah, this place. Guys, stop. There's this great house over here that has lots of cool stuff in it. It's got uh, an ephod, it's got household gods, it's got a carved image, a metal image of the Lord, and best of all, there's a Levite priest. And so they turn aside from their mission of conquest. All 600 men stand at the gate to Micah's house. Yeah, imagine that. Imagine at your front doorstep, 600 people with swords making sure that they're visible. And then the five spies go on in and they start looting the place. They take everything they can that's not nailed down. Especially, they take the ephod, the household gods, the carved image, the metal image that Micah's mum made. And then on the way out, there's the Levite and he goes, what are you doing? And they tell him, shut up. Put your, like, put your uh, hand over your mouth. Don't say a word. You could come with us. In fact, wouldn't it be better if you served a whole tribe of Israel rather than just one guy who's just lost everything? And the implication, of course, is they're going to give him a pay upgrade as well. And what we see devastatingly in the text is uh, the Levite priest, he's not just content about going with these guys, he's happy. His heart is glad. This is like his dream come true. And so he starts looting the place as well. And he, he says to the, the spies, oh, well, when should I start? And they're like, well, you're doing a great job already. Right? This is the situation. A false priest. And so Micah, he rocks up. He sees the situation. The 600 guys, the Levites stealing stuff with the, the spies of Dan. And he comes running out. 
with his, his own little militia of, of servants and neighbors. He catches up to everyone. He overtakes the 600 soldiers. He stops in front of them and he yells, What do you think you're doing? Now, the people of Dan respond, Oh, hey, mate, what's the matter? Why have you come and stopped us with this cute little army of yours, your neighbors? And Micah says, take a look at these words in verse 24. He said, You take my gods that I made, and the priest, my priest, and you go away. What have I left? How then do you ask me, what's the matter with you? And the people of Dan just laugh and they go, hey, 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 mate, don't get your knickers in a twist. Right? It's not a big deal. Besides, you wouldn't want to make anyone angry, would you? You know, what you're saying right now, it could actually make 600 people pretty mad if you think about it. And so Micah, seeing that this big army of Danites is much stronger than him and his neighbours, he swallows his pride, turns around and goes back home. But come back to his words in verse 24. Notice what he says. You take my gods that I made. Remember Micah's view of God. He believes that God can be controlled. This is my God. He's mine. And so if I press the right buttons, do the right things, I can make God do what I want. But now finally he's come to see that this false priest and this false God have ultimately left him with false confidence because his false God has let him down. Remember his words. What do I have left? He cries out. I've got nothing. There's no hope for me anymore. See, a false God with a false promise can never save you. It can never give someone what they really need because a false God is nothing at all. And it leaves those who place their confidence in it with nothing. And we see this today. I mean, uh, we all know someone who made their life about their career. We all know someone like that. You know, that this person uh, just lived for work, hoping for, for respect from their colleagues, perhaps, or for, for wealth or for security. And they were confident that it all work out. We all know someone like this. And most of us know someone who, in that situation, was let down by their confidence. Right? Like maybe they won the respect of their colleagues, but they lost the love of their families and everything went belly up. Maybe they got rich, but never rich enough. They were never actually happy and satisfied. Maybe they thought that they were secure because they climbed the ladder, but then there was an economic downturn and they were made redundant. Most of us know someone with that story, someone who made a false god out of their career and put false confidence in what they thought it could give. And whether it's the career that actually costs more than it gives, or it's the beauty that fades, or it's the relationship that ends up being unfulfilling or going stale, or a healthy body that suddenly 
breaks down, it's a pattern that we see again and again and again. If we put our confidence in these things for meaning or for happiness or for security or for whatever, it'll let us down, inevitably. And even that small minority of people that manage to buck the trend, right, and they end up rich and happy or whatever, at the end of the day, death takes it all away anyway. No one can take their toys into the next life, right? We come with nothing and we leave with nothing. We all know this. These things will let us down. But the challenge is actually seeing it in ourselves. Because I reckon if you went and said to Micah something like, you know, mate, you do know that your, your success eventually is going to run out, right? He'd probably go, oh, look, yeah, you know, of course, nothing lasts forever. <laughs> but in his heart of hearts, I reckon he's thinking, but it's different for me. And it might be different for all sorts of reasons. You know, um, I'm smarter. I make better decisions. I know what to look out for. I've got the better plan. God himself has blessed me. Whatever the reason might be, uh, in the end, everyone who puts their hope in any sort of false god will end up disappointed. It leaves them saying, you've taken my God from me and I have nothing left. And not just Micah. It's also the people of Dan. They lose everything one day. There's a hint of it right at the end of the text. Look at verse 30. See, the Danites, they go and conquer Laish. Everything looks great. It's an easy battle. And they set themselves up in the land. Here's their new home. But only until, as verse 30 tells us, the captivity of the land. Do you see that? Only until the captivity of the land. What's that mean? Well, years later, God would actually give over this region to foreign enemies like Assyria and Babylon. You see, even the tribe of Dan thought that they were blessed by God, had their Levitical priests, went and won the victory and set up their homes. Even that didn't last forever. Even that eventually let them down and they were carried off or their children were carried off into slavery. Their false God disappointed them too. And so here's a truth that every person on earth must acknowledge. A false God with false promises can never save you. It will only let you down. But the end of this passage also hints that things could be a different way. Take a look at verse 31. See, even though the people of Dan set up their image of a false God, the true God is still there. And the hint is that it says that the house of God, the tabernacle, still stands at Shiloh. Now, what's that mean? Well, it means that the meeting place that God had given for people to come and to know him and to worship him in truth was still there. In fact, it always had been. Back from when the people first came into the promised land, they set up the tabernacle right there in Shiloh. If you want to see, it's in Joshua chapter 18. There it was. And so while all of this was happening, in fact, while all of Judges was happening, 
the tabernacle still stood at Shiloh. And God was saying, you can still come and know me and worship me in truth right here. My arms are still open. And it's the same for us today. Only we don't have to go to a tabernacle to know this God and worship him. Listen to the words of John chapter 1, verse 14. This is an eyewitness account of, of Jesus' life. It says this, The Word became flesh. That's saying Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh, and he dwelt amongst us. And that word dwelt there, literally in the Greek, is the word tabernacled. He set up a tent of meeting among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus tabernacled with us. He set up the tent of meeting between man and God. He left his place in heaven to become a man and give us access to God, full of grace and truth. And not just in his life, crucially, necessarily, in his death. Because at the cross, we know that Jesus died as a righteous man. In fact, one who never put his confidence in anything other than his Father, the true and living God. The one who lived the way that we ought to have lived. Never rejecting, never disobeying, but putting his full trust and confidence in his God and following him no matter what. Even though that meant him going to the cross to give himself as a willing sacrifice, even though it led to his death, See, Jesus went and he died for everyone who's tried to ignore God, reject God, rebel against God, control God, even manipulate God. Everyone like Micah and the Levite and the Danites and you and me. Jesus died for us. He died to take the death and the judgment of God that we deserve. And then he rose from the dead to show that all who put their confidence in him, all who trust him and his death in their place and choose to follow him and worship him, will never be let down. Even death cannot take Jesus from someone because he rose again. Only the true God will never leave us disappointed. Only the true God can save us and give us what we really need. What do we really need? Life with God. This is what we really need. It's life in personal relationship with the God who created you and through Christ saved you and opened the way to forgiveness for you and made you righteous in his sight. It's life with this God in whom and with whom you can find true and lasting joy, deep and lasting joy happiness, true meaning, true beauty, true security, and life forever that comes through putting your confidence in Jesus. And I know myself that putting your deepest confidence in Christ alone really does make all the difference. It actually uh, takes someone who says, don't take from me my money, my beauty, my health, my relationships, my family, whatever the case may be, 
Don't take it from me because then you'd be taking my God and I would have nothing. It takes someone who believes that and transfers them into someone who can say, take whatever you want from me because I've got Jesus and he's everything and he's enough. What a change. But that's the change of going from death to life. That's the change from going not a Christian to a Christian. That's what we're talking about. And so therefore, just like his disciples, the, the opportunity opens for us to say, to whom else will we go? You, Lord Jesus, have the words of eternal life. And we believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We put our confidence in him and we say, where else would we go? In you, we have everything. And so, friends, where is your confidence? Where is your trust? Who are you worshipping? Is your confidence in God through the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus? Or is it in a version of God that you like the sound of? Or perhaps in a promise that won't really come true? What would make you say, if you had it taken away, I have nothing left? Big questions. That a false God with a false promise will never save you. But through the wonderful promises of Christ, God will never disappoint you in giving you what you really need. Life with him. And so let's pray. Oh dear Lord, thank you for the gracious gift of yourself to us. Who else do we have but you? Lord, help us not only to remember these things, but live them out. Putting our confidence in you, repenting of our sinful idolatry, repenting of our attempts to render you down into a version that we approve of, or put our trust in promises and things that will only disappoint us. Oh Lord, prove yourself to us again and again and again, the faithful God that you are, we ask. Be merciful to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Can't wait to actually be with you guys next week. It's going to be so good to see you face to face and open God's word all together. See you next week.